So today we're in our fourth week in the book of 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible and hold your place. Uh, I think I mentioned the first week of the series, um, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 summarize Paul's reason for writing this letter to his uh, young follower, his young protege, Timothy. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy that if he is delayed from coming to Ephesus in person, quote, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And he's writing, as we've noted several times, he's writing in part to advise Timothy how to respond to false teachers that are influencing the church. And as opposed to the way that the false teachers are conducting themselves, Paul's explaining to Timothy how Christians ought to conduct themselves in God's household within the local church. And this third chapter of 1 Timothy is a, is a chapter that is largely about leadership. It's most obviously instructions on the qualifications for leaders that serve in the church, but it touches on some other aspects of leadership as well. It touches on the organization of leadership within the church or uh, church government, if you will. Uh, of course, it lists those qualifications for those who lead within the church. And then in verse 15, I think that we find some responsibilities that all of us share. Some ways that all of us are called to lead, at least through our example, if not actually through formal leadership uh, positions. And so at the risk of this sermon being a little bit lecturish, as opposed to the normal, extremely inspiring sermons that I uh, preach around here, what, what was so funny about that? Um, I, I want to touch on each of these three aspects uh, of leadership today. Organization of leadership, qualifications for leaders, and then ways that all of us are called to lead, at least by example. So there's quite a bit here today. Uh, it, it may be a little lecturish, but, you know, that's okay sometimes. It's, it, it's all right, so, so bear with it. You know, we live in a time that I think is absolutely desperate uh, and in desperate need of strong leadership, both in the church and within our larger uh, culture. And so there's a lot of stuff here today that we need to take heed to. So let's go ahead and read the chapter. Uh, I'll read and you follow along, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 16. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons." In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. 
Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in uh, glory. And so from these verses, and in keeping with Paul's intention that his writing informed people how they ought to conduct themselves within God's household, I want to share some expectations that I think we find for ourselves within this chapter. As I mentioned, we find things in this chapter that are expectations of church government, some things that are expectations of church leaders, and some things that are expectations for the entire congregation. And I want to highlight a few things in each of these areas. So first, let's talk about the organization of leadership in the church or church government. It's obvious in, uh, with just a casual reading of this passage that we are reading about a very early form of church government, an early form of organization of leadership within the church. We read about qualifications for overseers, deacons, and wives of deacons, which is also noted uh, in most translations as possibly meaning uh, women who are uh, deacons. And so it's obvious that we are reading about the organization of leadership. We are reading about uh, church government. And so I just want to share a few thoughts on church government. Uh, there are some things in here that are opinions of mine. I, I, I think these are God-pleasing, Bible-honoring thoughts, but, but there's some opinion in here. So there's, there's room for you to view some of these things differently. Uh, but I wanted to share my thoughts. I think it's important for us to realize that there is not a single pattern of church government that's set forth in the New Testament as, as being for all places and all times. There's not a single pattern that's given as prescriptive for the church throughout all time. And if I didn't think I'd bore you too much, I'd spend more time explaining why I think this is so, but I'll mention just a few things. And first is the range of interpretation and understanding of this passage itself and other uh, similar passages. The, the word that is translated overseer here, depending on the translation, means either uh, overseer, elder, or bishop. And then when you turn over to the book of Titus, which has a very similar list of qualifications, the, the word that is used there is a different word, which is everywhere, at least that I know of, translated as elder. So within Timothy, you have these three words that gets, get translated. In Titus, you have the one, the one word, elder. Now, most people believe that elder, overseer, and bishop describe the same role. But some folks believe that uh, that, that they don't, that they describe different roles. And in fact, the way that the uh, church has used these terms over the past 2,000 years has revealed that there's quite a diversity of views uh, as to whether uh, elders and overseers and bishops are all the same thing or they are uh, different things. You know, in some traditions, it's viewed, elders are viewed as local church leaders, while bishops are viewed as people who lead elders and in many cases, people who lead uh, more than one church, lead several uh, churches. And so there's been a diversity of, of opinion as to how these uh, terms 
uh, are used. Modern scholarship, as I think I might have already mentioned, is almost unanimous in concluding that they describe the same role, but through the history of the church, there's been a variety of practices. Uh, Even as we consider Timothy, uh, we were left with some questions. You know, Paul is writing to Timothy in order to correct error in the church, and it's believed that some of those who were in error in the church at Ephesus were themselves elders. And so Timothy's exact role uh, within that church is likely that he was there as a special representative of Paul, sent to establish and guide the church in the establishment of local church organization. But Timothy is considered by uh, many uh, throughout the history of the church to have been the first bishop of Ephesus, uh, even though he's not actually identified as that. So I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, variations and different ways that this has been approached. So it seems to me that there's not a single pattern of church government uh, that is presented in the New Testament for all places and at all times. What I do think we see here is a basic framework of church leadership. Elders, overseers, supported by other local church leaders called deacons. And I think this basic framework provides a good pattern for which many churches try to model their church government after. Many Christians believe that using these exact biblical terms is very important, but many others don't. And I count mine among those who find it kind of unconvincing that we have to use these exact terms. I think it's unconvincing because, uh, you you know, these terms that we see here were not exclusive to the church at the time of Paul's writings. In Greece and Rome and Jewish tradition, elders were a widely recognized role within the larger society. And in some cases, these very words used in the scriptures here were used themselves in a secular uh, context. Secondly, I find it unconvincing because the range of interpretation of the words themselves leave us with some variety of opinion, as I already mentioned, and then, of course, the practice of the church over the past 2,000 years being so varied. Now, many churches, if you come from a, uh, if you come from a mainline church background or a church with a lot of history behind it, you know, it's been around a long time, it's very possible that you have been very familiar with the use of these actual terms, elders and deacons. Uh, Other churches use the term pastor for the role that in the New Testament would have most likely been identified as elder. Some churches use the biblical term elder, but don't use the biblical term deacon, instead referring to what would be deacons as uh, simply as ministry leaders. And of course, if you're familiar with what we do around here, that's us, that last one I just mentioned. We do have elders, but then what would... uh, biblically be called deacons, we call them ministry leaders. Other churches don't try to use the biblical terms at all, but have adopted more uh, business terminology. And so, you know, their elders might be called their senior leadership team or their senior management team. And uh, I was thinking of trying that here, but I didn't think you guys would respond very well to, to that. I didn't think you'd like it. I'm joking. I wasn't really thinking about that. And other ministry leaders are simply called ministry directors or ministry coordinators. And so here's, here's my view on it. I don't think the terminology is so important. Here's what's important. A local church is to have leaders, not just a few leaders, but a variety of leaders, shared leadership. They should have overseeing leaders such as elders, and they should have support leaders such as deacons, 
no matter what terminology you use. Churches are to have a range of leadership positions active in the church, not just one or two leaders doing everything. Here at Vineyard, we use the term elders and we use the term ministry leaders. But even that has some variation in it, if you think about it. I mean, think about me. I, uh, you know, if you look at the New Testament, my role would probably most accurately be described as lead elder. But that's not what we call me. What, 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 do you guys, what do you guys know me as here? Do you know me as lead elder or do you know me as something else? Pastor. Pastor. If there was a joke over here, I'm not asking what it was. Um, so again, my role is probably best, uh, you know, biblically thought of as lead elder, but we call me pastor. And, and pastor is a term that gets used by many churches uh, for the role that in the New Testament would have likely been called elder or overseer. So here's the main point of all of this, okay? The church is to have a variety of overseeing and support leaders working together in unity. The leadership of the church is a shared thing. We lead together for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And and so to that end of leadership being a shared thing, there's another point that I think is important for us to share. I want you to notice in the writing about the organization of leadership within the church that Paul mentions elders, deacons, and then depending on the translation that you uh, read, he either mentions the women or their wives. And it's very likely that Paul was not here just giving qualifications for deacons' wives, but for women leaders, for deaconesses. And this is the view that we hold here at VCC, which means that we believe uh, church leadership, church government, if you will, is to include both men and women leaders. Now, last week, I went to great length to explain why we embrace women leading and teaching here at Vineyard, so I'm not going to rehash all of that today, but as today, we see these distinct roles of elders and then deacons and deaconesses, I will mention at this point that here at VCC, we do view the role of elder as a leadership position that is reserved for male leadership. If you've been here at the church a while, that's not a surprise to you. But if you have any questions at all about that or why we take that position, I'd invite you to email me this week and I'll be happy uh, to dialogue with you about that. And so here at Vineyard, we affirm women leading, including leading men. We affirm women to teach and preach. At the same time, our conviction here is that elder is a role that is to be filled by male leaders. Our view is summarized, I think, quite well by Timothy Keller, uh, the, the author of The Reason for God, The Prodigal God, and The Meaning of Marriage, and many other books. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. I think he is the, the greatest Christian author and thinker of our generation. And Keller says that when it comes to women leading in the church, quote, women can do anything a non-elder male can do. And I think that's a good description of our uh, position here at Vineyard, which means a woman can do any leadership role except those that are specific to elders, which largely amounts to exercising church discipline and providing the senior leadership 
of the church. So again, if you have any questions about that, email me. I'll be happy to dialogue with you. Uh, I'm not going to take more time on that today because my own experience has been that when these issues come up, there's usually only about three people that are concerned one way or the other about the topic. Now, that doesn't suggest that you shouldn't be concerned about it or that there's some problem with you if you're concerned about it. It's okay to be concerned about it. It's okay to want a dialogue about that. It's just my experience is this is not an issue in our context uh, that is animating very many people. And so I'm not going to take a lot of uh, time with that today, but please email me if you would like to. So, leaders. The church is to have a variety of leaders overseeing and support leaders working in unity with each other. And so let's turn our attention now to what's expected of local church leaders, qualifications for local church leaders. First notice that there are specific qualifications listed for both elders and deacons. Here are the qualifications for elders. It's a pretty extensive list. Above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, must manage his own household well. I really like this one. With dignity, keeping his children submissive. Have you ever seen a parent keep their child submissive, but it was without dignity? (laughs) Usually you see that in Walmart. And uh, so... So keep their child submissive with dignity. That is sometimes a tall order, uh, but that's one of the things that we're called to as leaders, at least for the role of elder overseer. Uh, I guess the rest of you can do what you want. Um, No, just joking. That's that's not true. Uh, Must not be a recent convert, well thought of by outsiders, okay? And then here's the list for deacons. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And, and, you know, that's an interesting phrase, and and there are some different thoughts about what that is. I I think it just means that you, you, to serve as a deacon, a ministry leader in the church, you you have to be fully persuaded uh, of the truth of the gospel. You can't be someone that's kind of on the fence, like debating what you believe about the gospel. You have to be fully persuaded of it. Uh, Next, they must be tested and only serve once testing proves them blameless. They have to be the husband of one wife. And again, they have to manage their own children and household well. And then for the women, the wives or the uh, deaconesses, however you view it, they must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. With these lists of qualifications, we have to again keep in mind the context of the false teachers. Because what Paul is doing with these list of qualifications is he is uh, providing these qualifications and they stand in contrast to what was happening in the lives of the false teachers. The false teachers did not have these qualifications evident in their lives. But what I want to do now is instead of parsing out each of these qualifications for leaders, I simply want to highlight two important things These qualifications communicate to us about local church leaders. And here's the first one. Local church leaders are held to a higher standard. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) Local church leaders are held to a higher standard. And those who enter into any level of local church leadership 
must fully accept that they are going to be held to a higher standard. One thing for us to note is that leadership within the local church is entirely voluntary, at least in a sense. In in a sense, it isn't. In the sense that you're called and gifted by God to lead, he sort of expects you to lead. It's, It's not voluntary in that sense. But it's voluntary in the sense that leadership is never forced on anyone. People are invited into leadership, and they have to accept that invitation. Leadership comes with real responsibility. And because it does, it also comes with real accountability. Remember, again, Paul's writing to encourage Timothy toward setting things in order at Ephesus. Some people weren't doing what they were supposed to to be doing, and they needed to be held accountable for the wrong things that they were doing. And so let's, let's talk to leaders here for a minute. Uh, anyone who has a leadership role at any level here at Vineyard, when you accepted that role, you accepted real responsibility and you accepted real accountability. You should know this. I, I'm pretty confident we communicated that. Uh, but, but if not, you know, I'll remind us here uh, today. If you're leading in any capacity here at the church, one of the things that that means for you as a leader is that you are fulfilling, you are keeping, you are living up to the expectations, the commitments of members here at the church. And so in case, you know, you're not sure what what those are, uh, let let me remind us today. Uh, One of the commitments of members here at the church is to follow the leadership that is set over you. And so the first place that comes into view is whatever ministry you're serving in, are you following the leadership uh, of that ministry leader? And if you're a leader within a ministry, are you following the leadership of whoever has general oversight of that ministry? And then, of course, it also means to follow the leadership uh, of the elders that are in place uh, here at the church, the elders and the pastors of the church. There's the second commitment, that you've been baptized and that you are committed to growing in your faith. If you're leading here in the church and somehow you slipped through and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. That's a commitment that, uh, that you made. That's an expectation of leaders. Growing, in, uh, growing spiritually is an expectation of leaders. The third thing is you affirm our statement of faith. You share our values. You, you agree with our uh, organization of leadership here at the church. The fourth one is you're committed to being involved in a ministry. And of course, if you're, if you're leading, you certainly have that one covered. The fifth one is you're faithful to Sunday worship. And the sixth one is you're involved in a small group. Leaders are not people who forsake the assembling of themselves together. Here's another one. You give financially, both regularly and substantially to the work of the Lord through this local church. And then the final commitment is that you're open to being challenged if people close to you within the church become concerned uh, about your life in some way that, that brings question regarding your fidelity to Christ and the gospel. 
And so here's what I say with, with nothing in mind. You know, this isn't based on, you know, like somebody I'm targeting here today. This is just based on the fact that this is where we're at in, in, in our series. This is the chapter we came to. But, but if you're leading a ministry of any kind, you're in any role where you have moved beyond serving to actually leading, and you're not fulfilling the responsibilities of membership, I'm appealing to you today to change that, to change that. Now, I was in a church once, a very large church, where a pastor gave a similar presentation to what I just did, asking leaders to fulfill their responsibilities. And then he ended it this way. He said, if you're not fulfilling those responsibilities, then I would like you to resign from your leadership position effective immediately. And I'm not doing that. (laughs) I am not doing that. And here's one of the reasons I'm not doing that. We all fall short uh, of living up to the expectations of leaders at some time. Uh, Sometimes I, you know, I I don't want to have to resign every time I I, uh, fall short of some expectation of me. And and I don't uh, view it that way for any leaders in the church. But here's what I would ask. If you are a leader in the church and you're not fulfilling your responsibilities, you need to commit today to change that. You need to commit to do uh, what you are called to do, to do what is expected of you, and here's why. It is, it is biblical. This is right. Leaders are held to a higher standard. You agreed to these things, and you need to keep your word. You have real responsibilities real expectations, and real accountability. And you need to accept that, and you need to be responsive to that. Leaders are held to a higher standard. That is the expectation of church leaders. And here's the second one. Leaders are to represent the church well within the larger community. The false teachers, through their public behavior, were bringing the gospel into disrepute. And leaders in the church today have to represent the church and Christ well within the larger community. Is who we show ourselves to be in here who we're also showing ourselves to be out there? So let me give a few practical examples of ways we need to make sure, leaders, that we're representing the church and Christ well in the larger community. And I'll preface this by saying that most of you who know me, you know me well enough to know that I don't believe being a Christian means that you have to put up with being mistreated, that you just have to roll over all the time. It it doesn't mean that you have to let yourself be taken advantage of all the time. It doesn't mean that you can't ever object when you get lousy customer service. It doesn't mean any of that. But we do need to watch how we interact with everyone because we care about representing Christ and the church well. And this, this really, the rubber meets the road in this when something goes wrong in our interactions outside of the church within the larger culture. And let me give you one that I like to talk about a lot. It's simple. You're probably tired of hearing of it, but, but, but I think it's really important. How does it go with you when you're not getting the kind of service that you want at a restaurant? How do you act? How do you respond? Here's part of that. Are you a good tipper? Are you a good tipper? If you are not a good tipper, please do not ever let the server know that you're a Christian. Please, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, don't let them know you're a Christian. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you can't adjust your tip accordingly if you get bad service, but don't not leave a tip. Don't leave a quarter. You know, I I read about an NFL player who left a quarter because he got bad service. Don't do that. Don't be like that. That's not a good thing. Let, Let me ask you this. When you need something from your server, do you think about how you say it? So, so do you say something to the effect of, you know, if you have time, I would appreciate a refill on my drink? Or do you say, drink, <laughs> drink, thirsty, <laughs> I'm thirsty. How do you do it? When your basket of chips is empty at Puerto Vallarta, <laughs> do you say, could I have some more chips, please? Or do you hold the basket above your head and holler out, chips? How do you do it? I've seen these things happen, so don't think I'm you know, making stuff up. Leader, how do you conduct your business in the community? Do you have a good reputation in business in the community? Are you known for being fair with people in the community? What happens when your car repair wasn't successful and you're now back the second or the third time? How do you balance insisting on being taken care of properly while still maintaining a Christian witness and and keeping the emotions that you understandably have at that point in check? How how, how do you do that? And and do you think through that? And, And does your responsibility to represent Christ affect how you do that? If you volunteer for a community organization, do you do what you say you will? We find in 1 Timothy 3 that church leaders are held to a higher standard and they're to represent the church well within the larger community. And so again, I say this with no situation or no person in mind just because we came to this chapter today, but leaders, let's examine ourselves and make sure that we are leading well. Let's examine ourselves and make sure that we're really holding ourselves to the higher uh, standard that is expected of us. You see, our doing this matters a lot. It, it matters both within the church and the example we set within the church, and it matters outside the church in the larger community. Nothing less than our gospel witness is at stake in whether or not we hold ourselves to this higher standard. And now let's see what we find about what's expected of the entire church, the whole body of believers that makes up the local church. Verse 15 tells us, but let's start looking again at verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So there are four things that I think we find that are expected of us together as the church. And here's the first one. It is expected of us that we see ourselves and that we live as family. We are told that we're part of God's household. We are family. Now, I think this is a tough one for Christians to think through. And I think we make some mistakes when we think about living as family in the church. In essence, what I, I think we often do is we have a little bit of a, 
uh, misunderstanding of exactly what that means. Let me see if I can explain this. I, I think that most of us, when we think about living in the church as a family, we, we think about living within our biological family. And, and we think about the, the closeness that we have. We think about that everyday interaction, that truly living together and, and walking together moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day. And it sets such a, a high bar of what it means to live as family that we say, I can never do that in the church. Or it does something else and it sets us up to be disillusioned with other church members because they're not doing that uh, with us in the church. And we say all oh, this whole thing about being a family in the church is just lip service. But I don't think that this is what Paul is saying. I don't think he's meaning to communicate an idea to us that like we're with each other every moment of every day. I mean, think about your own biological family. This reality of living in that kind of closeness is actually only true for a few short years in any of our families. It is true when mom and dad are raising young children in their home. But once those kids go and they're grown, that's no longer the reality of family is being together every minute of every day. Even biological families do not spend most of their lives in that kind of constant interaction. I, I have been out of my parents' home for 30 years now. And I'm sure my mom will tell you, we do not spend every moment interacting uh, with each other. I think what is important in thinking of the church as a family is not that idea, but it is the idea of commitment, that we are committed to each other, and we are committed to the community as a whole. We're not looking at each other as like ships passing in the night, oh, these people will do okay for a little while until I find a better group of people somewhere else. No, we are to be fully committed to each other. This is, this is what biological families do, at least when they're healthy. I, I realize there are exceptions and some of us have a broken family relationships, but, but when a family is healthy, being family, like your attitude is, well, I've, I've got to make peace with these people. They're my family. What else can I do? I, I have to work through this problem. They're my brother or my sister or my mom or my dad. We have to get through this. And I think that's the kind of thing that Paul is calling us to. Are you fully committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Whatever your level of daily interaction, do you see people in the church as people who could call you? And you would help them to the very best of your ability. Are you willing to value people in the church enough that you'll work through difficulty with them instead of bailing out if the relationship becomes difficult? And here's one. Are you willing to tolerate the crazy aunts and the crazy uncles in the church? Because the church has them. Have you noticed that the church has crazy aunts and crazy uncles? Have you noticed that? You know, most of us in our families have a crazy aunt or crazy uncle. Um, we, we had a, I mean, he wasn't certifiable, but we had a crazy uh, uncle in my family. And, 
and my middle name is after him. Uh, it, was, it was Uncle Lowell. And uh, Uncle Lowell used to just, just delight my cousin and I with, with his stories of how mean and tough and bad he was. I don't believe most of them were true, although I do believe he was a pretty tough guy. I don't believe most of his stories were true. I don't even think they like passed the, you know, the smell test, like they just couldn't even possibly be true, but we loved his stories. One of his stories was that he lived in Indiana, and he was traveling back to Indiana, and, and right before he got to the border, he was pulled over by a state trooper and given a ticket for speeding, and, and his response after the trooper gave him the ticket and walked back to his car was to tear the ticket up into little pieces, to throw it out on Interstate 70, and then to keep on driving. And being the good Christian young boys that we were, we loved that story. <laughs> you know, we just delighted in that story. Stick it to the police officer. Just speed anyway. We thought that was awesome. Another story he told, which appalled my wife, that I told it in the first service, but I'm going to tell it anyway in the second service, is he told the story of pitch, uh, picking up a hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker pulled a knife on him. And in his telling of the story, he calmly looked at the hitchhiker and said, I'm going to give you about three seconds to put that knife away, and if you don't, then I'm going to stick it up your... <laughs> I can't complete the story. I can't complete the story. I'm going to stick it up your left forearm, is what, he, what, what I think he said. I apologize if I made you uncomfortable. <laughs> we all have crazy aunts and uncles. Crazy aunts and uncles in the church. Do we embrace them? Do we love them? And here's some motivation for you to love the crazy aunts and uncles in the church. You might be <laughs> a crazy aunt or uncle in the church. You just might be. What's expected of us all is to view ourselves and conduct ourselves as family it is a lead-by-example expectation of every believer. And secondly, we're to live like who we are, the church of the living God. We are the ecclesia, the, the called-out ones. They came up here like 10 minutes early, so just, just act like they're not up here and keep listening to me. We are the ecclesia. We are the called-out ones. The church is made up of those who have been called by God and have responded to his call. We're the company of people who have been called out of the darkness of this present world, and we've been called into the wonderful light of God's kingdom. Do we live like that? Or do we continue living as though we belong to that kingdom of darkness? Do we live like the redeemed people we're called to? It's a responsibility that each of us have as a member of the church. And then we find two things that it means to be the household of God, the church of the living God. It means that we are to be the pillar and the foundation of truth. And this is an extreme privilege. In the city of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis was surrounded by 127 pillars. Each of them was a gift from a king, and they were made of marble, and they were studded with jewels, and they were overlaid with gold. And here's an interesting thing about them. They were not support pillars. They were decorative pillars that were meant to draw attention to the temple. We are to be collectively the pillar of truth. Individually, we are to be pillars of truth. We are people 
who draw attention to the truth. We are people who are called to to place the truth on display to all the world. We're to be committed individually and collectively to drawing attention, uh, drawing the attention of those around us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is our responsibility. All of us together and each of us individually draw attention to Jesus. And then we find that we're to be the foundation of truth. We are to be those who hold up, who support truth when others are trying to tear it down. The false teachers in Ephesus were trying to tear down the truth. But Paul was calling Timothy, but not only Timothy, but the entire community. He was calling them and reminding them that they had a responsibility to guard the truth, to support the truth, to uphold the truth when others are trying to tear it down. The church is called to defend truth, even when doing so is unpopular, even when doing so means confronting false teachers in the church, even when doing so means coming into conflict with those who we have welcomed into our community. You know, many Christians today have no stomach for defending the truth, but according to Paul, it's expected of local churches that they would act in defense of the truth. Three areas of expectations for the church. It's expected that there be a variety of leaders sharing leadership, working for the good of the church and for the good of our witness in the community. Leaders are to be held to a higher standard. They're to represent the church well in every context. And the entire church is to live as a family, to live as called out people. We are to display the truth to all people And we are to defend the truth against those who would seek to destroy it. Friends, this is an amazing responsibility. It is an amazing responsibility. To be people entrusted by God to be the pillar and foundation of truth. It's an obligation. It's an expectation. But here's what I hope we'll really understand. It's a privilege It's a privilege to be the pillar and foundation of truth. It is something that we should be able to joyfully and thankfully embrace and give our lives to. Let this be true of us today. Let's joyfully embrace our leadership responsibility to be the pillar and foundation of truth. Why don't you stand?